Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 18th, 2016. Yeah, sorry there was no episode yesterday. Had to tend to some pastoral duties. Sometimes that happens. We will be continuing with our jaunt through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is rapidly winding to a close. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to, you know, open up our Bible and apply just good context, some good hermeneutics, proper exegesis, to compare and see what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose, yeah, small group curriculum, apparently we need to be studying instead of the Bible, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word said. says. Are they teaching sound doctrine? Are they teaching historic, biblical, Christian orthodoxy? Are they rightly handling God's Word? Or are they twisting it, generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach? And over and again, we see that that's the, the second one is, well, what's happening a lot nowadays in Christianity. Now, we've been working our way on Wednesdays through the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. We are well into chapter 10, and, uh, well, let's just get right to it. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, gosh. All right. Good morning, everyone. Okay, last week, we just began chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, and I'd like to go back over these verses because they certainly flow into the new material we'll go into today. At the beginning of chapter 10, uh, verse 1, you have this observation, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The idea here is that, uh, unfortunately, in this world, evil is stronger than good. 
So much so that you take one little fly, okay, and the perfumer works and spares no expense and gathers all sorts of exotic and luxurious in- ingredients and makes this wonderful smelling, extremely expensive perfume. And a fly comes buzzing around, plops in it, okay, and it's only a matter of time until that perfume stinketh. All because of one little fly. So evil uh, is put in a position of superiority and greater power than good. Um, this is the fragility of good that we talked about. And you see it, uh, you know, even, even in the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 9, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Right? So it's as if God has uh, set the tables, set the game, and said, okay, Satan, do your worst, and in fact, I'll give you all the chess pieces. I just want one. You know, I will give you the strength, I will give you the power, I'll give evil the upper hand in every single way so that one evil thing can undo a lifetime of good. And we know that, right? I brought up the example of a, a good girl who lives her whole life well, has a drug overdose, and dies. Right? Um, one bad decision... Uh, one infidelity, uh, one mistake, one lack of judgment, one sentence that you should have kept inside your mouth, but you loosed. One little thing can cause so much harm. It can lose you a job, a marriage, a relationship, a life, etc. We all know that that's true. We lament and mourn this with Ecclesiastes. Okay? But, on the other hand, the one place where good does triumph evil, it is a very little, very small good, okay? and yet it overturns all evil, period. And that good is the day we call Good Friday. right? Through that one little good, that one day, that one afternoon, that one man, comes the undoing of all evil. So do you see how brilliant God is And do you see how uh, if anyone can deliver an insult, it's him. Talked about that theme before. Certainly God knows how to undo Satan's power. How to treat Satan disdainfully and conquer him anyway. I mean, not least of which would be this example that Luther points out. When God promises the serpent way back in Genesis that the seed of the woman will crush his head, what God does with those words is take Satan with all his power, with all his might, and puts him in fear of women, specifically the pregnant kind. (laughs) The fear in any baby born of that line might be the one who's going to crush his head. So God knows how to deliver an insult. Satan lives out the as the serpent lives out the rest of his days crawling on his belly. Satan lives out the rest of his days scared to death of the seed that's going to come and crush his head. Okay? When God wraps himself up in human flesh to come and wage cosmic war, God versus the devil, good versus evil, right? You would expect chariots of fire. You would expect the army of heaven in full array, shining armor, blazing eyes, the whole bit, right? Instead, how does God show up to do battle? In a manger, wearing a diaper. Now, 
So God knows how to deliver an insult and knows how to undo the works of Satan, even though Satan have every advantage. So while we could say with Solomon that a dead fly can ruin a whole batch of perfume, right? A dead savior can ruin a whole batch of evil. Can undo it. And that's the nature of the cross. Um, That's the nature of the woman who takes the little leaven and hides it in the dough. The positive examples of leaven. Or the little tiny insignificant mustard seed that grows to be one of the greatest uh, bushes in terms of size. What is small becomes great in the hands of God. And what is weak becomes mighty in the hands of God. And nowhere is that seen more than in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, again, to this dilemma that Solomon poses, that really he reveals to us, and we all know it's true based on experience, what we have to do is use our eyes, reason, observation. Uh, God's answer to that is the undoing of all evil, despite the fact that good is fragile and small and weak. God finds a way and does it in his son Jesus. Okay, so that is a major point. Then we start to go into uh, some of the more or less random proverbs that sort of hold a theme and sort of don't. We looked at verses 2 through 4 last week, so let's just breeze by those again. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, which would imply guilt, for calmness uh, calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So here, here we have some themes of conduct and observation that the fool is obvious in all his ways that he's a fool. Um, and then again, conduct of the ruler, which we would which we would put, you know, the anger of the ruler. Solomon says other places the rulers that are set above um, are often foolish ones. I'll say that in the next verses. Okay. So again, here you sort of see like the misery of life is a fool is a fool no matter what he does, even if he's on a road, he's still a fool. Okay, um, and then the other the other thing being. Uh, rulers are often fools, and they're often angry fools. Okay? And if they're angry, then here's the way to try to endure their wrath. Don't leave your place. Combat it with calmness, etc. Okay, let's go into verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. It were an error proceeding from the ruler. Okay? Ruler shouldn't be the one in error. It should be the one leading in truth. So this is a reversal of how things should be. And that thought continues in verse 6. Folly, foolishness, is set in many high places. In terms of uh, governmental chairs, religious authorities, scientists. Folly is set in many high places. And the rich sit in a low place. In other words, things aren't as they ought to be. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Me too. I have seen fools in Porsches 
and I have seen wise men driving old beaters that barely run. All right, so things aren't how they should be, uh, that, and that theme continues. Now what we have next is, uh, this is the new material then, beginning at verse 8. If I had to sum up kind of the remainder of chapter 10, which are these random proverbs, it's, this is the theme. All of life is treacherous. Okay? You can control very little of it. Control what you can. So again, this then, the rest of this chapter, as probably with the first part of it, would be expressing the central theme of the book, that all is meaningless, all is vanity, all is screwed up, and we have to have an answer. We have to have something from outside. Under the sun, this is how it is. We have to have something outside come in and be under the sun and be new for us. And of course, we know from previously discussing this that that new thing, come under the sun, is God himself in human flesh. That's new. And he says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. So we'll meditate on that theme uh, as we wrap up Ecclesiastes. Okay, so all of life is treacherous. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So what, what do we gather from this proverb? Thoughts? Don't be shy. Exactly. No matter how good intentioned, okay, no matter how careful, if you dig a pit, you might fall into it. It's your vocation to be a, tick, uh, a pit digger. The day might come when you fall into that pit. I've often reflected on the same as I have bookshelves in my office all around me. <laughs> I've thought, if there's an earthquake, I'm going to die by avalanche of books. And that pleases me. I, just the irony of it. <laughs> I could think of no better way to go. Yeah. So the scholar will die by having books fall on him, or, uh, or the pastor who reads too much. And uh, likewise, he who digs a pit will fall into it, or the serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, if you, and that, this next one I think is even more beautiful because it frees us from this one to one. You might think, for example, that he who digs a pit, well, yeah, you're going to fall into it. Why are you digging a pit in the first place? Right? But what about breaking through a wall? I mean, you're doing some demo in your house, or you're a construction worker, you're doing some demo. You don't expect a snake to leap out and bite you, and then it does. So, I don't think Solomon is expressing some one-to-one, like, uh, you know, dig a pit and you're going to fall into it, don't dig pits. That's not what he's after. He's after the idea that whatever you do, there's, it's fraught with danger. Life is treacherous. Even the things that you set out to do, even the things that you're supposedly an expert in, filled with danger. Okay. Now that theme continues uh, in, the next one, in the next verse, verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So whatever vocation it is that you do, you work in the quarry or the forest, danger all around you, life is treacherous.
Okay, that seems to be the theme. And these would be examples of things that you can't predict. Okay, so, you know, you get up on Monday and you go and you can't predict that you're going to fall into the pit. Right? You get up on Monday and you go to work and it's unpredictable. And it's infuriating that it's unpredictable. You think your day is going to go like this and how many times does it not? Right? Um, so uh, this is, these are predictable examples of how life is treacherous, and we're all aware of these dynamics, and there's just not much we can do about them. So we have to, what, what, what is the problem? The problem, these dynamics themselves, the curse, the futility that God has afflicted upon this world and upon us, we have to be set free from. All right, thoughts on that? Any questions? I'm going to ask for your, I'm going to ask for your thoughts a little more frequently. If you go... Uh, in this section especially. Because if you go uh, over to chapter 12, verse 9, what we're, he- we're here in the postscript, okay? But what he says here is pertinent. Besides being wise, the preacher, that's Solomon, that's uh, where we get the word Ecclesiastes, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, that just gives us a nice uh, introduction to how, in the ancient world, Proverbs were viewed. They weren't viewed as laws or universal truths to which there are no exceptions, or even necessarily viewed as communicating one single thing. In other words, the nature of a proverb is that it's meant to be thought about, mold over, reflect on it, think about it, Chew on it, okay? As we're going to see if we get far enough today, there's some stuff he wants you to chew on, (laughs) right? And he's going to present it like, oh yeah, this is the way it is. And he wants you to think, is that really the way it is? Okay, so uh, again, as we go through these uh, Proverbs, I'd love your feedback. I'd love to have you uh, help to... uh, chew through these things and chew over these things uh, as we weigh and study as uh, Solomon himself gives us to do. Okay? Any observations on these first verses? Believe it or not, these are probably the most straightforward, so enjoy. (laughs) Into verse 10 and 11, now, whereas before when we looked at 8 and 9, we would say that These are, life is treacherous, work is treacherous, okay? And these are predictable things, or excuse me, unpredictable things. These next uh, two are things that should be predictable or could be remedied by uh, some premeditation, some thoughtfulness ahead of time. Whereas the other one's not so much. In verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge... He must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Okay? So what's the idea here? The idea is if you've got a forest of trees to lop down with your axe, all right, do you want to spend all afternoon cutting down one tree with a dull axe? Or do you want to take a few minutes, sharpen your axe ahead of time, and then go and be more productive, more successful? Okay? So in other words, wisdom... 
calls one to stop and consider his works and try to predict what he can and uh, to sharpen the edge and work more efficiently as opposed to using a blunt edge and working inefficiently. Right? So again, this, this sort of has to do with using wisdom in a uh, premeditative way. The next verse is similar in theme. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Well, duh. <laughs> he doesn't get paid, no one's impressed, and he might be dead. Yeah, so okay, so the idea is hey, stop for a minute, charm the snake, right? And then do your little tricks, do your vocation. You try to do your little tricks and your little vocation with the snake before you charm charm it, you're going to get in trouble. So again, he seems in these Proverbs to be meditating on the theme that wisdom ahead of time can be helpful. But, again, to the overarching theme in the connection with the preceding verses, again is the theme that life is treacherous. You screw up, you're going to spend a whole lot of strength that you didn't need to spend getting a job done. Um, not that that's ever happened to any of us before. You know, not that you don't, didn't like <laughs> write an entire paper only to go back and read the syllabus and realize <laughs> that's not the paper it was asking for at all. <laughs> uh, you know, not that you've you've set off to do a job only to find out that a little bit of Research ahead of time might have saved you a whole lot of time down the road. Okay, well, uh, again, observations that life is treacherous, life is tricky. In this sense, it's not how God meant it to be. Um, But this is a result of the curse and the fall. All right, in the next uh, few verses, like 12 through 15, we have yet another meditation that is pro-wisdom. Right? It's better to live wisely than be a fool. And again, uh, not to beat the horse that's already long since dead, but wisdom is not the end-all, be-all. The wise and the foolish end up in the same place. So wisdom as a toil, wisdom as a pursuit, as a way of life, is still vanity. And yet, even though it's vanity, even though it's meaningless, even though it doesn't ultimately fulfill you, it's still better to go through life as wisely as possible than as foolishly as possible. All right, so let's go into verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. But the lips of a fool consume him. Which is rather poetic. The lips of a fool, the words he uses, end up devouring him. He devours himself by his foolishness. Okay, so words matter. And the wise man uses words to win him favor, and the foolish man, his lips, his words, consume him. Continuing on with the foolish, verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. So it starts with a faulty premise, a foolish presupposition, and the end of his talk is evil madness. I don't know if Solomon was watching the news. That's sort of what I think. 
whether it's Fox or CNN, it doesn't much matter. It's all sort of the same variation on a theme, isn't it? Okay, so the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. So also when you hear evil madness, trace it all the way back to the faulty or foolish beginning. That is the presupposition or the faulty premise that starts the whole thing going off track. Okay, continuing with the theme of a fool, 14. A fool multiplies words. Now, this is a theme we've explored before with Solomon. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? So again, what Solomon is suggesting is that the way of wisdom is also the way of humility. And an essential part of humility is realizing that you don't know everything, you can't know everything. In fact, you don't even know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. So with that humility in mind, uh, you're going to hold your tongue a little more. Right? Because you don't know. You don't know the end of all things. You don't know how things are going to work. It is a very perilous thing to give advice. As many of you know. Very perilous thing to give advice. I try not to. I try really, you know. What's your opinion? What's your advice? It's the best I can give you, or eh, I'm not going to help you, or well, God's Word says this, or God's Word doesn't say anything. His advice is a very perilous thing. And so, uh, you know, here too, the opposite of that is a man who, though he doesn't know anything, not even what's going to happen five minutes in advance, he just can't stop talking. And he's sure he's the smartest person he's ever met. And he loves the sound of his own voice and all of that. We've met people like this. Maybe at times we are people like this. <laughs> all right. So anyway, that's the fool. And the wise man is uh, careful with his words, thoughtful with his words, humble with his words, knowing the limitations of his own mind, knowing the limitations of his own wisdom. And of course, all of this has a hint of, of the recurrent theme, the fear of God, where he set boundaries for us that we can't transcend. You know, that's this business about no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. God has set boundaries so that God can be God. And that causes us to have respect and awe and fear and humility and to be silent before him when he's in his temple. Okay? Then one last verse on the fool. The toil of a fool wearies him. For he does not know the way to the city. Well, who doesn't know the way to the city? So the idea here is he's so dumb he doesn't even know how to get to back home, right? Or get to the market or get to his workplace. In other words, this is the fool. And so even his journey to the city wearies him. I don't know exactly what this is getting at. As I chew on it, um, as I think it over, I sort of have this fear. The toil of a fool wearies him. If I find myself constantly wearied by my toil, I just might be a fool. <laughs> So that's not a comfortable thought. Because who isn't always weary? <laughs> 
But this is sort of the law way, you know. Um, if you're always weary, then you're making all of life weary. Even going to the city, even something that should be easy. Even something that's not even work. You get wearied by it. You have a foolish outlook, a foolish perspective. You've bought into some lies that you're telling yourself and living. That would be the law approach. How about the gospel approach? That's better. Come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. That's nicer, isn't it? I like that too. But again, uh, Ecclesiastes isn't interested in being nice. He's interested in just saying the thing how it is. And in the absence of a merciful God, in the absence of Christ, saying, come unto me, ye weary, then look, you're weary all the time. Guess who you got to blame for that too? And no, it's not everyone else. All right, well, let's break there, see if there are any thoughts. All right, we've done some life is treacherous. Why? Because there's things you can't predict. Life is treacherous. Why? Because there's things you can and should predict. Life is treacherous because the fool is always popping up and he's not always out there. Sometimes the fool is popping up right here inside of me. So life is treacherous and challenging. Thoughts? Pastors, I was thinking about verse 14. The fool, uh, or 15, the toil of the fool wearies him. I linked it back to verse 10, where the fool is out there with his blunt axe, not giving thought to sharpening his axe. He's just in that just excessive, inefficient, banging your head against the wall or trying to chop down the tree. Absolutely. Results in weariness. Yeah. I think you're exactly right as well with verse 11, that it's the fool who's going to go poking a snake before it's charmed, right? So, yeah, yeah, I think that that's, I mean, if there's any interconnection thematically between 10 and 11 and what follows in 12 through 15, I think, David, you're exactly right and right on it. Yes, Bob. Yeah, could you just comment on the, uh, back to the treacherous life or, or in yeah. contrast, the, in that day, uh, life was treacherous, but today we have cars that go over 100 miles an hour. We fly around at almost the speed of sound, and we're always trying to mitigate these treacherous <laughs> devices that we have. And it's it's ironic that we make things more treacherous, but yet we're trying to be safe <laughs> about our treacherous. That's such a great observation, Bob. That is, that is so great. I'm just waiting for the government to force me to wear a helmet in my car. <laughs> Because statistically speaking, that's one of the most dangerous things we do. You know, more dangerous than flying, statistically speaking. Uh, You know, we all are scared to death of sharks or getting caught in a lightning storm or whatever else. And then we go get in our cars and whip around, right? So what we need is a nanny state uh, to come in and put helmets on all of us and elbow pads, shin guards. Keep us all safe, right, Bob? Yeah, and that's precisely the way that our uh, we go. You know, um, few people die doing something, and all of a sudden we're going to cover it in laws to prevent this from ever happening again. And how successful is that? It's not. 
So here too you see the, Bob, it's such a wonderful observation. Thank you for it. Because you see the futility is as we try to fight the curse, as we try to fight the way things we are, it's what Solomon continually reflects on. If God's make it, made it crooked, you aren't going to make it straight. We talked all the way back at the beginning of the na- naivete of, of the idea that we are going to, through a war on drugs, remove drugs. Through a war on poverty, get rid of poverty. Through a war on hunger, we will end world hunger. All of these things are afflictions of the curse. They're as deeply written into us in the world as our own sinful nature. They're not going anywhere. And you don't even need the proof text where Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. Okay, so we are futile to overcome uh, the treacherousness of life and the problems of life. And in fact, God makes it this way. So that we can't, so that we realize that not individually nor corporately can we be our own saviors. Can we fix things? He has to fix it. He has to save us. He has to make it right. What he's made crooked, he has to straighten out. Yeah. So thanks, Bob. That's good. You know, now in the NFL, you can't tackle each other because you don't want people getting hurt. Terrible life. Will you let your kid play football growing up, or hockey, or wrestle? Think of all the bad things that could happen. Now let's get him in the car and whip around at 80 miles an hour on the freeway. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. 
know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. And here, what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out with People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Bum, 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 bum. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never engages in in-depth biblical teaching like you're hearing today. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you, well, you get to pick your rank. There's uh, four ranks in our crew, and it's based upon your monthly commitment. Uh, Powder Monkey is our lowest rank at $9.95 a month. Gunner's made at $24.95. Master Gunner, $49.95. And Quartermaster, $99.95. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you can that you would like to donate, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 with Jeremy Rohde. Here we go. Steve, what you, <clears throat> excuse me, what you talk about wearies me. <laughs> Always, or just, or just in here. Just the futileness of the futility of it all. Yeah, I mean, reading this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's in verse, you know, the the very first verse. Which one of us hasn't committed folly and been foolish? Yeah. And that ruins any little bit of wisdom, at least for me, that I've ever produced on some level. And that's the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> You're killing me, Pastor. I'm not. I, I think Solomon is. I think he's killing us all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the nature of the law. You know, the law always accuses, and the law is going to reveal this. And, you know, the tricky thing about the law is very often we begin by going, haha, those fools. I know someone just like that. And the more you think about it, you're like, and he's me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, this is meant to weary us. This is meant to... But, you know, that's the, that's the beautiful thing that I think it's Fulton Sheen who calls Ecclesiastes black grace. And I love this idea because it's the way it is. Um, Steve, you would know this. There are some where you've got somebody with like a hyperactive sort of uh, disorder. Sometimes isn't the treatment, I mean, so they're overly stimulated, right? They're, isn't the treatment sometimes to actually give a stimulant? Yeah, right. And so this, so you're going, what? That's so counterintuitive. You know, take an overly stimulated person and stimulate them more in order to settle them down? But that's exactly what happens. That's the strange, reverse, counterintuitive, black grace of Ecclesiastes makes it so black it starts to become white you know it shows you it makes you so weary that finally you go oh my god thank god thank god that i'm not the only one that feels this way thank god that god is telling me i'm not insane but in fact there's much more sanity for me to learn by pursuing this path and then thank God that the answer isn't in me, but he's taken that out of my control. Because if he put the answer in my hands, I'd be sure to botch it. Be sure to screw it up. And ultimately that points to the beauty of grace itself, 
if there's anything conditional upon me, then it can't be grace. And it's not a promise. And I'm going to find a way to screw it up. Right? So God in His grace has taken salvation out of my hands individually and your hands individually, out of our hands corporately. In fact, He's removed the whole thing from the human race and said, you can't do it at all. I'm going to do it for you by becoming one of you. Okay? And by taking on human flesh myself, I will begin to set things right. I will begin to make all things new. So yeah, it's it's super. It's uh, it can be super depressing or demoralizing or whatever. But then somewhere, the lower you go and the blacker it gets, you start seeing what was just law, almost become grace, and at least start at least at bare minimum to be technical, pointing you, as if by spear point, <laughs> to Christ. Right? It's not in you. It's not in this world. It's in Christ. Okay, great thoughts. Anything else that you're chewing on or thinking about with these? All right, let's go on a little further then. Again, the idea that life is treacherous and not always in our control, that sort of overarching theme can be seen in the next verses, which otherwise don't seem all that related. Maybe the relation is... The rulers are fools. But anyway, look at 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, or is as naive as a child, and your princes party in the morning, because they're going to be wasted all day. They're not going to be much help to you. That's the problem with partying in the morning. They'll be napping, and the enemy comes. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your prince's feast party at the proper time. For strength, not for drunkenness. That's the best kind of party. Not the drunken party, but the party that's for strength. Wine and food for strength. All right, so what do we have here? We have two parallel statements, one a woe and one a blessing. Um, when, you, when your king is uh, childish and experienced, or a child, and your princes are more interested in partying than helping you, right? Um, and then happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, the princes party at the right time. Okay, now, what's the problem here? The problem is, what choice do we have? Particularly if you think in Solomon's day, right? Um, when the king is simply part of a line, right? And if the and if the sitting king dies early, a child, his child, his son is going to take over, even if he is a child. You can read through Kings or Chronicles and see that that often uh, Israel is has the, has a child as a king. And oh, is that ever a problem? Right? So we've solved everything by democracy, right? Right. One of my favorite lines, and I, I didn't come up with it myself, heaven is not a democracy. I just stop and think about that a little bit. have to let that absorb in, especially as we believe with almost religious fervor that the entire world needs democracy. 
it will right all wrongs and undo all ills. And if we can just get the message, the gospel of democracy out to people, it starts sounding like a religion, it starts sounding like the ultimate form of government. Heaven is not a democracy. Things Americans need to chew on. Okay. Pastor Rhodey's against democracy. I can't stand that guy. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. All right, so uh, you've got a problem. The king could be a child. The king could be a fool. The governors, the princes could be foolish. They could just be partying instead of running the country. I don't know that Washington's anything like that necessarily. And what do we do as the subjects? Well, we're stuck sort of in this futility. Woe to us or blessing to us, happy to us, but we don't get much choice. So look, life again is very treacherous and unpredictable. And you're stuck sometimes under a bad leader. Sometimes for years. And that's just how it is. So what do we need here? (laughs) A new king. A good king. And a kingdom not of this world. The kingdom of this world, they're all filled with bureaucrats and fools. At least that's what Solomon says repeatedly. Remember back in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where he talks about the problem of bureaucracy, which is amazing. 3,000 years ago, they had that problem. Um, And then, as we saw him lament just earlier, that oftentimes the people set in high places are fools. Folly is set in the high places. So, uh, we need a new kingdom and a new king. Kingdom not of this world and a king not of this world. And lo and behold, that's precisely who we have when Jesus is crowned. In what strange and bizarre way? With thorns. When he's coronated as king by having the world spit on him, slap him and beat him, wrap him in a robe to mock him, press the crown of thorns on his head and smack it with sticks, while giving him false worship, lifting him up and on the cross and putting the, the sign over his head, three languages, the king of the Jews. So, uh, again, all of the laments that we have toward this world and government and all the idolatry that we fall into, if only I could get my guy in office, it would all be better. Idolatry. I mean, get, the, get the right guy in there. Don't believe he's going to make it all better. Not even for a second. Put not your trust in princes, scriptures say. Okay, And that goes for the politics inside the church, too. Certainly the politics of the world. All right, so what we need then is, uh, again, you see, as it were, Solomon painting a portrait of what we need. And he's painting an intractable problem. Kings, rulers, governments, the chance. What's the end of it? To which we have no answer, but God has an answer. My son, his kingdom, the kingdom that's not of this world, his reign. That's why Christ comes saying uh, in English translations, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, um, I wish that it were the reign, because it's just so much clearer. The reign of God, the reign of heaven is at hand. And it's come in the person of Jesus. And that's what he's proclaiming at the beginning of the Gospels. In other words, the king has returned. The king is here. 
Okay. Let's do a couple more of these proverbs then, unless you have thoughts. Are there any, uh, any hands up? All right. So 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Laziness, the house leaks. Okay, it's just two parallel statements. And this sort of begins a theme that's going to get carried over in chapter 11 and what follows. And the theme was, is going to be that uh, you look at how bleak the world is and you see how bleak the world is and maybe your answer is, I'm just going to close myself off. I'm just going to have no part in it. I'm just going to become a hermit. I'm just going to sit in my room. Okay, well, there are unfortunately consequences to that too. One of them being that if you don't get off your duff and interact with this fallen, stupid world, then things like your roof sinking in or your house leaking is going to happen to you. So in other words, inaction (laughs) or... uh, receding or retreating or hiding away is also not a solution. You have to embrace the suck. You have to engage the world. All right, now here's one of the great ones. Here's one of the great ones. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Right? This one I love because it's like pop quiz. Like pop quiz. Did you forget what I wrote earlier? (laughs) Remember back in chapter 5? It's interesting. uh, These verses really seem to reflect thematically chapter 5, really 8 through 11, or excuse me, 8 through 14. Um, If you go to chapter 5, 10 through 14, you'll see specifically this business about money. And again, it shows you that these proverbs, you've got to chew on them, you've got to think about them. So again, in chapter 10, you have the statement, money answers everything. Chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. So money answers a lot, but does it answer everything? And likewise, you could say... uh, Wine gladdens life, it certainly does, but it also can bring tragedy. Yeah. If you go back to verse uh, chapter 2, verse 3 through 11, he's already covered this. Chapter 2, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards, which were for wine, not jelly. So I was going to have lots of wine. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had uh, been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, money, right? And the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. 
So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. All was meaninglessness and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Okay? Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Oh, the Bible is so fun. Because people will quote this like, there it is. Get rich. I love it too. I was reading a marriage book, How to Make Your Marriage Better. Where is it? And he quoted something. Just great. Yeah, yeah. Here was here uh, chapter 9, verse 9. This was the quote at the begun the book. Ecclesiastes 9, 9. This is from the Bible, you see. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Full stop. Of course, it's not full stop in the Scriptures. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless life. (laughs) Doesn't theology make you sick? I, I can hardly read Christian books anymore. This is notorious as, you know, uh, Rick Warren's God laughs. <laughs> God laughs. <laughs> In derision at his foes. <laughs> it's a, you know. <laughs> My gosh. My gosh. Okay, well, that's, there's creative exegesis for you. Just lop out the parts we don't like. Make it all happy, shiny, and smiley. So, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Here's your proof text. Just go ahead and serve mammon. Jesus has no problem with that, obviously. Verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. Now, earlier, Solomon's given this advice. Don't curse anyone. Okay? Um, and if they curse you, don't pay any attention to it. Because you do curse people. <laughs> if people are talking trash about you, don't pay any attention to it. Why? You talk trash about other people. Now it's a little nuanced, but similar theme. All right, don't curse the king, or probably anyone above you, anyone in authority over you. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich. Here's an old Hebrew proverb. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Proverbs simply meaning that even what you think you're saying in private is a way of getting out. Even what you think you're saying to someone who you can trust, they have a way of betraying that trust. So you're better off, instead of trusting people and venting to them or venting at all, you're better off to not curse the king, uh, nor even in your bedroom curse the rich. This would be those above you, those in authority over you, or who have power to harm you. Better not to curse them at all. 
Now again, the at least in terms of the rulers, the king, we've seen that all too often kings are fools. Even then, you shouldn't curse them. Why? Because it may come back on you. That's the issue. So, in the overarching theme, again, you see that life is treacherous. So treacherous, you shouldn't even utter a word against someone above you because that word may get to them and they may come and do something about it, make your life miserable, whatever. Um, so life is treacherous. You have very little control over things. You can't even control the words you speak in your own bedroom, what you think you're speaking or thinking in private. All right. So you have very little control. What you do have control over, take control. Don't sit around and let your roof fall in. Uh, don't uh, you know? Don't go chopping down a forest with a dull axe. Okay, whatever you can tr- control, take control in. But then realize that you don't have that much control, and there's a lot of things that aren't the way they should be. Okay. Questions or comments? Melza. I have an observation. I have. I have a coworker who goes to um, Saddleback Big uh, War and stuff, and uh, we, my workplace is a Catholic institution, so they put out this, those reflections by the spiritual care director, who just quotes any Tom John and James out there. So last Friday we have a reflection which says, started out like that: We are born holy, the world is holy, and nature is holy. <laughs> so I told my, I laugh in my area and my coworker. They, this one goes, "Where you laugh?" I said, "Those stupid reflection never seems to always amuse. They always amuse me. They're so stupid. The director of spiritual care doesn't know anything about the Holy Bible. I guess the way yeah. they, he quotes those. She goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "We're a bunch of sinners." She goes. We are born innocent and pure little babies. And I said, we are born inherently, we are born into sin. And then make it simple, inherit from Adam and Eve. She goes, no, we're not. We are, how can a little baby have sin? So she's totally confused. So I have a great news about baptism. So I ask her, I don't want to be pushy, you know. It's a Catholic place and I work there and, you know, how. I said, would you like to read a little bit maybe? You know, I know it's a confusing topic, so I brought her great news about baptism. Uh-huh. She took her home. And I also printed the Psalm 51, where yeah. there's a line in there that says, we are born into sin. Yeah. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, that's the right approach, because otherwise you just get depressed. Yeah. I, just, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're like me, there's nothing that can ruin your mood more than walking through a Christian bookstore. Really sad. It's like the devil's sanctuary. It really is. Because he, you know, how does he appear to us, the scriptures say? As an angel of light of all that is holy and good. Yeah. I said, don't be deceived for those mega happy go lucky church. My husband, would you tell her that? And I said, yeah. She likes little back with lines and feel good. Sometimes she tells me certain things and then I have to brush me. Oh, about you feeling good? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, I think she's Yeah. The little cracker and the little juice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the self-serve communion. Yeah. Yeah, it's very very different world out there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah very different world. 
Yeah, so that's that's one of the strange things. You figure, you know, and, I, and in, in tune with the theme of this chapter that we've covered so far, is, I mean, if anywhere is safe, it would be a Christian bookstore, right? Wrong. The world's upside down. And uh, what most people think is white is quite black, and what most people think is black is quite white. Okay. Any other thoughts? Did I see another hand? Yes, Gina. Um, just in thinking about this whole book, I'm, I'm figuring it took him years, decades to write. It's during this period of his time where he's building things, trying out all this different stuff. And he has so much wisdom and insight to share with us. But I'd love to hear your comments about the end of his life. Um, just to kind of put it in perspective, I'm not super familiar with Solomon, but towards the end of his life, it his, changes quite a bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're told that he ends up uh, the the seven hundred seven hundred concubines, three hundred wives. Um, that obviously they're from other countries, many of them, and pagan countries, and they bring in their pagan gods. And that Solomon ends up following some of those pagan gods. Uh, that's what we're told, anyway. Now, one of the one of the theories. Um, is that uh, Ecclesiastes is the last book he wrote after he came to repentance. That's one of the theories. Um, Jesus uh, mentions Solomon positively, you know, without rebuke. Uh, and Solomon in many ways is a type of Christ and an anti-type of Christ insofar as he's a sinner and falls, right? Um, but yeah, anyway, one of the theories is that Ecclesiastes is, is written, I mean, obviously, like you said, he's collecting the data and collecting the thoughts to put this whole thing together for decades and living all this stuff. But in that section that I read earlier uh, from chapter 2 where he says, look, I got all these women, right? And I got, all, I got all this money and all these flocks and all this greatness and all this booze and I, you know, whatever my heart desired... I did not use the word no with myself, right? After I did all this stuff, I realized that it was meaningless. And so that's one of the arguments for perhaps he wrote this at the end in a state of repentance, realizing that he had been led astray by all the wine, woman, and song, right? Yeah. Um, aside from that, we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, start chapter 11 next week. Oh, there's one other hand. I'm sorry, Jennifer. Yeah. The whole wives and concubine things, which is common to many of the rulers, and I understand common to the day, but it, it always puzzles me greatly because it always brings with it a great deal of sorrow. You never hear about a good story <laughs> involving that kind of acquisition. And so it seems like that, even though he had asked for wisdom from the beginning, he heads in that direction immediately anyway, in terms of acquisition and building. And so somewhere along the way, it seems like even the wisdom was missing from the very beginning. Would you... Well, he's not using... A, I would say certainly the godly wisdom is Right. I mean, it's an element seems to have been missing from the very beginning in some of the pursuits. And it seems to be a common theme 
look at David, for example, another one yeah. who a man after God's own heart, and yet mm-hmm. treachery all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the yeah, and I would I would simply say that that's the nature of the toil of greatness, which is really, that's what we've been calling it, the toil of greatness, set apart from wisdom. In other words, wisdom is only valuable insofar as it helps me achieve greatness. And, uh, and pleasure... And that and, being the mistaken premise from the beginning, I guess is what I'm getting at. Uh, yeah, although, although for, from his perspective, tried wisdom. Right. Tried wisdom. Didn't work. Going to do a different pursuit. Okay, now wisdom is, because it's insufficient, it's not the, the great good, it's not the answer, um, I'm going to use wisdom like a tool to serve another end. And insofar as it doesn't serve, I'm going to ignore it, right? Mm-hmm. And insofar as it does serve, I'm going to use it. Um, which, of course, then it's going to have foolish elements. He's going to say, I'm not interested in being wise. I'm interested in greatness or right. pleasure, right? right? Yeah. But I guess what I'm, I'm thinking is that his... His wisdom was just worldly wisdom. It wasn't the true wisdom of God, which would have made him understand from the beginning what was the only thing worthy of pursuing. Right. That was missed from the very beginning. I guess that's the point I'm making. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I I would almost argue that that's missing throughout the entire book on purpose because, again, his MO is under the sun, under the sun, which neglects sort of the godly wisdom. In fact... If you look through Ecclesiastes, God doesn't speak. He's silent. Uh, Peter Kraft says this is, I don't know, I haven't looked, says this is the only book in the entire Bible where God is entirely silent. God is entirely silent. And if you go through, again, there's this toil that we've looked at called religion, per se, or relating to God. And if you go through the book, the portrait painted by God is simply the portrait that anyone would get Right, who's going to embrace a monotheism by simply guessing at what God is like via nature and the way the world works. What you come up with is a God who you can't understand. You can't sort out what he's twisted. You can't figure him out. You don't know if he hates you or he loves you. you have no, he's a great big mystery that causes you to fear and tremble. Your whole life is lived out under the shadow of his judgment, and he isn't exactly helping you out. And sure, he blesses here, he curses there. He brings the day of prosperity, the day of adversity, right? So the whole MO of Solomon is, let's look at religion under the sun. Let's look at God, but leave God out of this, <laughs> right? And then, um, and you see, this, you see this reflected throughout the book. That's, again, if you will, um, <laughs> if where he, where he wants to get you is the center, the whole of the donut, He's going to wrap the donut around, you know, all the way around, leaving that center for you to say, "That's Christ. That's what's missing." You know, that's what's missing. Um, so he's doing that on purpose, leaving it bleak on purpose. Okay, next week to chapter eleven. The Lord be with you. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>